Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is the third world? The term has essentially been scrubbed from our collective consciousness. What once used to be something concrete, it seems to have vanished into thin air. Today, the term world seems to be, quote, a closed chapter in world history. But my guests today are determined that it not remain so. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. I'm joined by historians Jan Prakash and Jeremy Edelman, co-editors of a new volume titled Inventing the Third World, In Search of Freedom for the Post-War Global South. Gian is the Dayton Stockton Professor of History and was a member of the influential Subaltern Studies Collective until its dissolution in 2006. His recent books include Mumbai Fables, which was adapted for the 2015 film Bombay Velvet, and Emergency Chronicles, Indira Gandhi and Democracy's Turning Point. Jeremy is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of History and Director of the Global History Lab at Princeton. His recent books include Worldly Philosopher, The Odyssey of Albert O. Hirschman, and the forthcoming Earth Hunger, Global Integration, and the Need for Strangers. Gian and Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. So we begin at the beginning. You began your careers as specialists of two different world regions. Gian specializing in South, the history of South Asia and Jeremy in the history of Latin America. So I want to ask each of you, when in your work or at what point in your journey has the questions that this book is raising about the third world, when did they come to you and when did they begin to seem meaningful questions for you? Maybe Gian, we can begin with you. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so, you know, I've been studying colonialism for a long time. And my impression was that um, since Edward Said's work, when uh, post-colonial studies emerged, uh, much of its focus was um, on how there was an urge for uh, another world, for a world after empire, <clears throat> under colonialism. Um, and much of the work that was done by post-colonial studies was mainly by literary scholars initially. <clears throat> and, you know, I edited a volume in 1995 called After Colonialism, which emerged out of a conference uh, we did at uh, Princeton in the Davis Center on empire. And the volume had largely articles by literary scholars. And it was about how there was an urge for the beyond uh, under colonialism. But then later on, I began to feel that, you know, uh, uh, while that was very useful, uh, there wasn't actually that much work, particularly by historians, on actually existing post-colonial societies. Um, and so I started actually a course called After Empire in 2015, and did a conference, and out of that emerged a volume with that I co-edited with uh, Michael Laffin, who works on Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean, 
called The Postcolonial Moment, which was also published by Bloomsbury. And, and the focus there was really on looking at the post-colonial moment as a moment caught between no longer and not yet. Uh, and so it was an ambivalent moment. And uh, we looked at various societies in South and Southeast Asia and how they tried to frame the future uh, in terms of states, economic policies, and so on and so forth. You know, So, <clears throat> so I was working with this, and then I started working on um, the emergency in India in 1975. And much of the historiography was... It was all because of Indira Gandhi. You know, she was an authoritarian, unlike her father, Jawaharlal Nehru. She didn't have commitment to democracy, and it was all because of her. And it was a momentary episode in Indian history. And when it ended, the path resumed. And I sort of knew that was wrong. So I started looking at uh, the emergency in its kind of a longer time frame. And it seemed to me, you know, going back to the work that I had done on the post-colonial moment, that 1975 was a kind of a last-ditch attempt to salvage the post-colonial project, and that by that time, something new had emerged. And I, then I looked at, you know, I mean, what was happening in India was not just happening in India. Globally, one could, you know, as everyone knows, from the 1960s onwards, you see a kind of a turmoil. 1968, Paris, guerrilla movements in Latin America, counterculture in the U.S., um, um, you know, turmoil in Pakistan, formation of Bangladesh, uh, Trotskyist movement in uh, Sri Lanka, Maoism. Um, and in India itself, I could see that, you know, by the late 60s and early 70s, there was a kind of a generational change, both in art uh, and in politics. And there was an urge to both look back at the kind of failed dreams of colonialism as well as looking forward and trying to chart something new. So that led me to think that, you know, there was a new a kind of an internationalism uh, that was uh, part of anti-colonialism, but that took a kind of a new shape by the 60s and 70s. I mean, I, you know, I remember I was a student in, in Delhi in the early 70s, and I remember doing a play by an Italian uh, playwright called Mario Fratti on Che. And that play was really about how the old communist parties were corrupt and so on, and, you know, part of a new revolution. And so it was very kind of internationalist. I mean, I remember in the early 70s, you know, going on demonstration for Angela Davis and, you know, carrying posters of, you know, Ho Chi Minh and so on. So, I mean, I think uh, I remembered all of this and I thought, well, you know, it would be good to look at what was that moment of, you know, the third world, uh, a new kind of internationalism. And that's what, I mean, I think the conversation with Jeremy kind of led to, you know, uh, thinking about these issues. Yeah, I had, you know, kind of some similar experiences to Gian's, although I was coming at it from a very different angle. I mean, I didn't grow up in India, but I grew up in Canada and um, and then spent a lot of time in Latin America in, in my youth. Uh, but for the same reasons, the, the underlying questions behind the book uh, have been there in a sense all along from, from the late 70s. Um, but to, for me, they were connected perhaps more to issues around development um, rather than questions of colonial legacy, obviously. And this is really reflects some of the differences between the, the prisms that you would get if you uh, worked and lived in Latin America compared to, say, uh, India. So connected to development and, and uh, the debates in Latin America about its place in, um, in the wider world as kind of quote unquote peripheral or quote unquote dependent uh, so that acknowledging the very different kinds of experiences with 
capitalism of living in the world was important to, to, to register. And for that reason, and this is what Gian was alluding to, um, these were also areas of the world that had very clear, that was the source of very clear alternative visions and, and, and dreams for what that world order might look like. And so what animated this project, the conversations that Gian and I had was, was you know, the search for a kind of different global history, you know, one that would uh, identify the ways in which Europe was not the only source of imagining worlds. Um, and that this quote unquote space, the space called the quote unquote third world uh, was generating um, this. So we were very interested in the, kind of the history of world making and I think for both of us, what we're saying is that's always been there. It just got pulverized by the effects of the late Cold War and post-Cold War, and we were trying to recover it. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll delve a little bit deeper into that question of, of why, why now, why this project now in particular. But before that, maybe we can set a little bit of a groundwork um, for our listeners. So I wanted to set some temporal frameworks first for what we're talking about. And this volume, uh, which has 12 chapters, um, an introduction and a, and a coda, it grows out of a conference that was held at Princeton. And the years that, that you chose to define the periodization of this conference were 1948 to 1979. And I'm interested to hear you speak about the choice, particularly maybe 1948 um, as a temporal framework to begin addressing these questions um, and revisiting this history of the third world. Jeremy, you want to take this? Sure, I'll, I'll grab it. I, I, so, um, you know, the term third world itself has a history. Um, it's coined in the early 1950s, actually by a French demographer. And in it's really initially meant not in entirely celebratory ways, right? That the third world was the leftover world of these colonial societies. He was a French, Alfred Sauvy was the man who coined it, was a French demographer and alarmed about the, what, what would happen with the, the combination of decolonization and population growth, um, especially in North Africa which is what he was observing very closely. And so for a French demographer in the wake of the Second World War, any these kinds of changes represented a change for France and for Europe. Uh, um, and the term gets it gets embraced, right? As uh, it gets in some senses flipped and um, as a uh, as a kind of label of affirmation or demand for recognition. I think we'll talk a lot about that. Um, and, and so it emerges out of the post-Second uh, World War era and the crisis of European and to some extent the Japanese empire. Um, and so combinations of independence in India, um, uh, new thinking about development and, and, and uh, industrialization in Latin America, the creation of new institutions to promote these and these, these, in a sense, crest by the late 1970s, dreaming of a new international economic order in the 1970s, um, yeah, OPEC and so on. But these come, in some senses, uh, uh, crashing down by the, by the end of that uh, decade, that the dreams that were uh, so powerful in motivating these alternative visions of the world um, in the pursuit of, of a post-colonial future of freedom, of development, of equality, of membership, of recognition, uh, those, in a sense, got smashed. We would kind of would argue with the dawn of something we, we might call the neoliberal uh, era, right? Um, uh, so that that explains that what we would call in history kind of the periodization is to recapture that that moment. It's worth saying you mentioned at uh, least the, the the conference uh, that we held at Princeton and and uh, you know for listeners they uh, maybe this is just a footnote at this stage, but it was the last conference I remember we were holding it and thinking about dreaming and uh, it was a kind of it was a very powerful conference. It was also when we knew COVID was descending on us. And there was a palpable feeling that we may not be together in the same room. Uh, so we were recovering things, but there was also a sense of closure um, uh, in the book, uh, in, in, in the conference itself, 
and at the very end, I think the comments where we're wrapping things up, kind of acknowledging that that uh, it may be a long time uh, before people could come back together and, and talk to each other about ideas and, and and history. Anyway, so that 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 explains the periodization. Did I leave anything out there, Gian? No, I mean, I, I think you are right about the conference itself, that, you know, actually, when we first organized the conference, there was no actually thought about doing a book. And it was uh, the conference itself, which generated this sort of uh, also a new kind of uh, solidarity in the conference itself. Uh, that led us to think that we need to sort of think about what was this kind of imagination of the third world? Because in a way, you know, in popular conversation by now, you know, third world is often used pejoratively. People, I mean, people often say, oh, this, uh, people used to say about LaGuardia, you know, the airport is like a third world airport, you know. And it was always meant pejoratively. And I always thought that, you know, third world had a much more imaginative aspirational quality to it and in a sense the uh, the conference captured that um, and so we thought well you know it has to begin with the moment when it emerges as this kind of aspirational term which is really kind of the end of formal empire in after second world war and then it continues still, you know, the late 70s. Um, and it's also interesting that, you know, when it ends in the late 70s, it is also a moment of its kind of a high imagination. I mean, that's when, you know, the new world economic order ideas comes through. I mean, all this is happening precisely at a moment it's also going to kind of plummet, you know. Uh, so I thought, you know, those two signposts were kind of important. So if the temporal markers are, you know, after the Second World War and right up to the beginning of the neoliberal era or the, the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, what are the geographic uh, markers? Because what I, one of the things that I learned, you know, having my, my focus is in African history. And so one of the things that this book drove home for me was particularly Cindy Ewing's chapter that the third world, she identifies a, a British observer of a conference in 1947 who uses the term first, let's say. And uh, that the third world comes out of a, a nugget sort of of post-colonial activism and rethinking that's happening in centered around Asian politics. And so we have a kind of expansion of the third world from an origin in a new Asia project, expanding into Afro-Asian solidarities to the non-aligned movement, and then to the tri-continental, including Latin America in, in 1966. And so maybe you can talk us through a little bit the expansion or the changes of this geographical imaginary of what the third world was to include. Yeah, I, I mean, Cindy's chapter, yes, as you said, it kind of lays out how initially it was sort of really Asian and uh, Afro-Asian block that uh, geographically thinks of this idea of the third world. And, you know, one can think of, you know, between Bandung in 1955 and the tri-continental in Cuba in 1966, and you see the kind of expansion of the term, um, where the third world now geographically uh, includes Asia, Africa, Latin America. But I would uh, emphasize more than it's kind of a geographic uh, uh, references to really the idea of another world. Um, because, you know, I, I think in, in Fanon, for example, where he repeatedly, you know, uses the term the third world, um, the wretched of the earth ends up with, uh, you know, comrades, let's, you know, build a new humanity, a new humanism for ourselves, for Europe, for everyone. So, I mean, there is a, an urge for an 
uh, an imagination of really a new life, uh, a new life after empire. Uh, and that new life for empire uh, is not geographically bounded, uh, but really aims at creating, uh, you know, a, a new kind of uh, world order. I, I mean, one of the things that I find striking, um, even about nationalism, is that, uh, you know, it was always uh, uh, concerned with some idea of newness. Uh, to give you one example, uh, Gandhi's uh, journal was called Young India. Uh, his press was called Navjeevan Press, which is New Life Press. So there was this kind of idea that, you know, after empire, there will be a kind of a new life, a new world. Uh, and that new world was not geographically bounded, but really kind of imaginative uh, about creating something new. I would add, you know, I agree, obviously, with, with everything that, that Jan just said. I, I would add that, um, you know, it's a, it's a story that has multiple origin points. Even if it has one term, um, it... it uh, it comes out of uh, thinking that uh, Africans, Asians, uh, Latin Americans uh, um, are generating, even if they aren't necessarily connected to each other. And one of the remarkable stories, and this is why the importance of in Cindy's piece, and, and Gian has alluded to some of these key events like Bandung and Tricontinental and and, and particular moments um, like the Cuban Revolution uh, that uh, begin to spark exchanges between these places that have their own origin point for dreaming about alternative post-colonial, let's say, systems or, 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 or world orders. Um, and these new practices of diplomacy and exchange that um, crisscross the world and integrate this space without necessarily Europe or the United States being at the center of it. And most of the practices of what we would call world or global history tended to start from, um, you know, the European institutions or the American institutions uh, and that radiate outwards and connect the world up. And we were very interested in looking at these, what we would now call South-South exchange systems and, and, and networks that emerged to produce from these various origin points, something that became a shared imaginary, not always the same, but at least had some common elements to it. Uh, that meant doing a very different kind of global intellectual history than is the, than is the norm. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just thinking uh, about those kind of key moments like Bandung, where I've always found Richard Wright's kind of small essay in his uh, uh, volume Color Curtain, um, his reporting on Bandung, very interesting, where at one point he says, uh, referring to the conference that, you know, it was a meeting that no political scientist, no anthropologist, no sociologist could have ever imagined. And he says it was almost utopian. What brought these, as he calls it, black men, yellow men, uh, Asians, Africans together, uh, there was nothing in their sort of, let's say, society or religion that could explain why they had come together. What they had in common was a colonial experience. So how that experience becomes the basis for forging these kinds of global solidarities and imagining a new world is something that he really kind of pinpoints. And I, I think he kind of captures what was unique about uh, Bandung. So these are histories of connectivity that are going uh, beyond and across and cutting through the kind of established systems of connectivity that history had had foregrounded, right? So the superpowers or uh, or empire, rather, this is um, the internationalism of, of the third world project is really fundamental, and you underline that in in the introduction. 
And one thing I found quite notable about this volume was that this connectivity internationalism, as much as it was, um, say, publicized and happened at conferences, where even if political scientists and anthropologists couldn't have imagined it, they would certainly have recognized, you know, its clear importance. There's also so much circulation and connectivity around exchanges of cultural production, of intellectual production, and the volume really does include um, attention to film, to literature, to art, to novels. And so I wonder at what point in your conversations you thought that foregrounding this kind of cultural and intellectual histories aspect was just as important as the um, geopolitical or more straightforward political history of the conferences. Yeah, why don't you take this one? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, I mean, we, you know, looking at the literature, it seemed that the whole idea of the third world had largely been dealt with by political scientists and in terms of geopolitics or, you know, non-aligned movement, UN and so on. And we thought that really, uh, if you look at how people were imagining this kind of internationalism, new kind of a globalism, um, there was a, a kind of movement from below, which focused a great deal on art, literature, cinema, and so on. So, you know, you take the example of Cinema Novo in, in Brazil and that kind of a documentary style that they uh, fashion, you find echoes of that happening in India. Uh, you find uh, there lots of kind of exchanges that are happening at the level of art, culture. And so, for example, Ethre Gupta's uh, essay in our volume talks about, you know, Souza, who starts with uh, the progressive artist group in Bombay in the 40s and then moves to London and does these kind of uh, paintings called black paintings, uh, where he argues that, you know, to see the color black, you have to contort your body. You can't just, you know, look at sort of painting on the wall in a traditional museum, but you have to distort yourself in order to see it. And that distortion has to do with the particular history of blackness and connected to slavery and so on. So we found that, you know, a lot of these really creative uh, things that were happening at the level of imagining the third world was in the realm of art, music, culture, and so on. And so uh, we actually invited people to the conference and then to the volume who were working on art, culture, uh, because I thought there was something there that was uh, both more enduring, but also more fleeting. And so it didn't really enter the kind of standard accounts about the third world, which was largely about, you know, non-aligned conference, Commonwealth conference, and so on and so forth. And connected to a narrative of failure, this goes back to a point that you had made earlier, Lisa, about the, the ways in which, you know, as one historian has called, the condescension of posterity is applied to the term, you know, third world, you know, it was, it was uh, seen as a, a project that somehow f failed and that, that that is connected to, let's say, economic policies or political processes and so on. Um, and what we wanted to recover are some of the legacies that got buried along with that condescension that were aesthetic and, and experimental, um, that were very important to this world making, you know, uh, motivation that, 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 that brought people together that that um, had to do with their new practices of representation um, of themselves and of each other to each other um, in, in different kinds of ways. It would be hard to imagine the, the magical realist novel out of Latin America without connecting up to these uh, processes um, that, that Guillaume talked about. Uh, and the way even that genre itself spread to 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 India and uh, and uh, and and the influence of, of of Mao, you know, with the idea of rupturing history comes to Latin America. And so, so how to recapture those exchange networks that go through writers, uh, musicians, photographers, and so on, 
and I think it's really important to 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 underline um, the importance of displacement and exile in all of this, because it, with it come these very disruptive moments for artists and intellectuals out of the quote unquote third world that put them in contact with each other in very intimate ways that also catalyze the exchanges elsewhere. So how to recapture that, that often escape those normal channels of, you know, the famous prizes and the famous cultural conventions that Europeans and Americans produce. That is also what this book is trying to recover. Yeah, the word that uh, is used, you know, a few times in the introduction, I think the idea of the imaginary, and that's very much what feels that the emphasis of this volume takes seriously in a way that other previous discussions of the third world maybe had had relegated a little bit to the background. So you, this book is coming out in 2023. It uh, is born, let's say, at a conference, very appropriate, uh, just before COVID fully comes out into the open. And how does, you know, the process of going through this is as the globalization that we've become so used to in, from the end of the Cold War onwards is, is in some senses very palpably breaking down, not only with the pandemic, but also with the rise of uh, populism or the putting into consideration to reconsideration the idea that all these offshore supply chains are a great thing that uh, make us stronger rather than make us weaker. So we're here in this moment of reconsidering um, globalization's forward march and its flattening of the world. And you're producing this volume in its kind of peak reconsideration, the period of the pandemic. What does the history of the third world um, tell us or shed light on regarding the, the place that this neoliberal globalization that we're surrounded by? How does it, how does it reframe thinking about globalization now that globalization is itself being kind of questioned? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, if we have a, and maybe we can kick this around, if we have a presentist uh, agenda, um, uh, well, which I do, and I'm not ashamed PHA to. is to, going on right now. <laughs> so. You know, um, um, is uh, partly in, in, in trying to recover this moment and voices and, and, and actors um, is also to convey, let's say, a different sense of the global. Um, if we are in the moment now where, and I think this comes up in both the introduction and, and the coda, and, and it's implicit in a lot of the essays, uh, if we are going to uh, you know, exploit this moment to rethink the global in the wake of, of, of a particular very strong and dominant narrative, which we called globalization, and that word itself was coined not by the Harvard Business Review, but it was in fact coined by uh, the North-South Commission that started to work in the late 1970s, published its report in, in, in 1980, and it coins this term globalization, which calls for a new world order of disarmament and equality and co-membership. And of course, it gets buried by the debt crisis and everything else of the 1980s and the what happened in 1989. But, but, um, to recover this idea of alternative globals, alternative ways of thinking about world order with a different vocabulary, with different practices of storytelling and representation. Um, and this is a moment in which we have to have a different conversation about it. And we might look back and, and say, there were actors and practices and, 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 and institutions on the stage, even back then, um, when the liberal system was getting institutionalized, um, that we've forgotten about that might help us rethink our moment now. Um, and uh, and so instead of burying quote unquote globalization, um, uh, to rethink it. And, and, and uh, because the fact is, we live in an interdependent world, and this is something that <laughs> that the third world voices were trying to argue for a thinking about what dependency was on this scale and that was often seen in kind of pathological ways dependency was bad and we needed to be autonomous and independent um 
In fact, we now recognize that we're all dependent in some senses on each other across borders. And that vocabulary alone, that thinking about what colonialism meant and its legacies and being dependent will be helpful for thinking about our present. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that that's an important component to uh, to recall for readers as they would approach the rethinking of this moment and uh, that the book tries to illuminate. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i mean one thing we certainly didn't want to do and we say that in the introduction as well is uh, you know to do something like the world we have lost um not an act of nostalgia look you know there was this wonderful moment and we lost it and rise and fall i mean that's not what we want to do uh, and in a way uh, you know the critique of kind of globalization that's emerged in the wake of COVID crisis, I, I would say, in fact, since the 2008-9 uh, global financial crisis, uh, that's made, you know, some of these arguments uh, more sort of palatable to uh, to people. But, I mean, I was thinking more in uh, sort of a Benjaminian terms in the sense that when, uh, you know, history says that the past is dead, it's past, it's history, it's finished. So third world is finished, it's dead. In fact, what is happening is that <clears throat> what is rubbished as, you know, debris and past uh, is part of the present. So this idea of globalization based on markets and you know shopping and so on uh, comes into being and becomes dominant by rubbishing this other idea of globalism and so it rubbishes it but it's very much part of the kind of present history and so we wanted to kind of recover it to say look this is another part of globalism that was rubbished by this market orthodoxy of globalism, but that is very much present. And we can see that now, you know, maybe it was brought by the COVID crisis, but now there's sort of a questioning of this idea of, you know, we'll all be together through market and, you know, the market will solve everything. And so I think this is a moment to uh, now, uh, think about the world that was rubbished and as discarded as obsolete and say, no, it's it's there. And, you know, that's what we need to look at. What's paradoxical is that it was, uh, you know, as Gian is, 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 is suggesting, it was so ridiculed for so long, right? And the paradox is that now people are desperately looking for, you know, languages of solidarity, not just convenience, um, uh, 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 equality, uh, not just supply chains, um, peace. I, I mean, th there's actually a lot in the book about peace and disarmament and thinking about the end to armed conflict. Um, uh, there are a lot of, say, coordinates in that long moment of alternative thinking and imaginings. Um, not necessarily to go back and recover for our present, but to say there was a history of these things that we buried and forgot for decades um, that could give us a different genealogy through the present and into the future and a different story of the world if we could 
uh, you know, open up these 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 doors and windows into these actors. I mean, in really, I I agree with entirely with uh, Jeremy on this because you know I I just taught a course this past semester to undergraduates, and these are you know what juniors and seniors, you know, nine, 20, 21 year olds. Uh, I taught this undergraduate course on uh, World After Empire and largely teaching Fanon, um, uh, Albert Memmi, um, you know, kind of a classic anti-colonial thinkers. And I can't tell you how eager the students are, the young students are, uh, about kind of new ideas without the kind of a Cold War lens. I mean, I remember teaching some of these things about 20 years ago, and there was always this kind of shadow of the Cold War, like, oh, is this Marxist, is this communist, and so on. I find that students today don't have those kind of hang-ups in actually approaching these ideas. So there's a kind of a freshness and eagerness for these kind of new ways of thinking about the world. Again, I, I have had the same experience teaching, particularly Walter Rodney um, in, mm-hmm. in my courses, where students feel that he's jumping off the page, that that he's he's such a fresh voice. Um for, for them, for, for, for them being exposed to, uh, to these thinkers who for a moment seemed fixed in time, right? Frozen in time, but in fact, we refine, rediscover such dynamism. And I'm glad you mentioned the Cold War because I think that's another part of the, the, the rubbishing of the third world project. That's been the dominant narrative of the second half of the 20th century. And one of the, I think, major interventions that you make in the introduction is to talk about the 20th century really as being defined much more about the, by the, the struggle for equality and for freedom, which is a longer struggle than maybe a more narrow and superpower focused Cold War lens. And you say the third world preceded and exceeded the Cold War. So maybe you can talk about the the intervention that you think you're making and how the third world project aligns and stacks up against in a kind of sense of periodization and thinking about, about the 20th century with regard to the cold war. I mean, I think Gian is going to have a lot more to say about this because he's thought long and hard about it, but I, I'll just very briefly say that I, I, one of the efforts of the book is, is to try to embed the Cold War, it's not to dismiss the Cold War. I mean, the, the question of socialism looms very large here and alternative socialisms in, in the story about the third world imaginary, but to embed the Cold War in a much longer epic around empire and post-imperial uh, global systems and imaginations. Um, Instead of the reverse, I mean, most historians think, well, there was the Cold War that affected empire and decolonization. Well, what if we turned this around and said, Actually, we can't really understand the Cold War outside the context of a much larger centuries-long epic of, about the ways in which empires like glaciers created the structures of, 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 of the human landscape around the planet. And once we do that, we start to see the Cold War itself totally differently. Right? Um, again, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, so, I mean, some of the recent work that I've been doing... Um, you know, involved looking at the British Council records and Congress for Cultural Freedom records. And, you know, I was trying to see, okay, so what does the world look like from, you know, Moscow and Washington and so on? And very quickly, uh, it, it emerged that, you know, in the historiography, the period after Second World War is seen as the kind of epoch of the Cold War. And then Third World kind of fits into that, you know. And even when there are attempts to kind of globalize uh, the Cold War, uh, like in Arne Westad's work, I mean, uh, it only goes so far to say, well, there were global origins of the Third, of the Cold War. But Cold War remains a kind of a central optic and as I looked at the materials, and I remember, Jeremy, I don't know if you remember this we, this discussion we had when we were writing that textbook, uh, Worlds Together and Worlds Apart, um, that, you know, eight of us in the history department collaborated on. And there was one other discussion where some of the Europeanists were saying, 
we must have a chapter on the Cold War. And Samos was saying, uh, you know, it, <laughs> more important is this sort of idea of the third world. Uh, and so we actually do have a chapter on this sort of uh, the idea of the third world after uh, the Second World War, in which the Cold War kind of fits in rather than the Cold War being the central optic in which the third world fits in. So, Right, and that chapter I, is called Three World Order. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so I mean, this was uh, kind of a long-term thinking that, you know, we need to see the world from elsewhere. And the world from elsewhere shows that a kind of, a, as Jeremy said, a longer struggle for justice and freedom, um, which is complicated by the Cold War. And in a way, what we need to do is to uh, see the two together um, rather than, you know, prioritizing the Cold War and then, you know, fitting geopol uh, Third World as a kind of a complicating geopolitics. And the other thing that I want to say is that you know, what we try to do is to also uncover the kind of a, an underground history of the Cold War, because when you see it largely from um, Moscow or Washington, it seems that many of the actors are mere dupes of the Cold War actors. So, for example, we have a chapter on jazz in Bombay by this journalist Naresh Fernandez, which is really about... Uh, how the Cold War is actually utilized by local actors to produce something new because they have ongoing projects. Um, the same thing, you know, Penny uh, Von Ashen does with, you know, these jazz tours in Africa where, uh, so, you know, you have the State Department which sends these black jazz musicians to demonstrate that, you know, America is not racially divided, you know, and we have these black musicians, but it actually has a different effect uh, in in Africa. So there is this whole history of what is then intended by the, you know, superpowers and what actually happens on the ground. And this is also brought out by Jessica Backman's essay, where it shows there's a new kind of a portrait culture that, you know, people in India produce through, you know, photos of Marx, Lenin, uh, Ho Chi Minh, Che, uh, Patrice Lumumba, uh, which, I mean, you could you could see through Cold War lens, but, you know, I mean, I think it's more useful to see what's happening on the ground and they're creating some, uh, another project, you know, the project of portrait culture. So, I mean, I think there is a whole underground history of, the Cold War, which is not related to just the superpowers, but what happens on the ground. Uh, and that's what, you know, the volume also tries to bring out. So in the, the coda of the volume, and I, I thought this was a persistent tension throughout the contributions, because as much as um, it's you know, it's so interesting to rethink and, and recover these third multiple third world projects and to see these undergrounds and to see these connections, for example, between Yugoslav and, and Chilean socialist projects, you know, which is, it doesn't come maybe immediately to the surface. At the same time, there's this pervasive tension between the project of the nation state and the, the need for a powerful centralized state. And at the same time, these projects that are internationally oriented on international nationalism or a national internationalism and these connectivities and solidarities. And, and in the end of the book, there's a coda by Samuel Moyne and he throws a little bit of cold water, it seems, on, on the, the rethinking of the third world. And he says, quote, Revisiting anti-colonial internationalism poses starkly how ironic and tragic its own un self-undoing has turned out. And he's talking about the principle of uh, national sovereignty. How do you respond to that, um, to that framing of the kind of tragic demise of the third world project? Well, I, I, I mean, one of the things I think, and Kian and I have already started to kind of 
email and talk about a, a sequel volume that will have to account for the undoing of it, right? Um, but uh, uh, Sam has has put his finger on one of the, um, um, you know, the the you could call it a tragic paradox. But but the point about the self undoing uh, it dovetails with what Guillaume was just saying. Instead of just seeing the CIA and the KGB overthrowing. Um, you know, third worldist regimes uh, in Guatemala and elsewhere, but to see the internal tensions that are being manufactured by um, this pursuit of alternatives, I think uh, uh, it kind of moves the story away from purely tragic versus heroic um, alternatives. And it is worth saying that that you know one of the processes, and I think Gian and I mentioned this in the introduction, that's going to emerge. Um, uh, uh, in part as an effect of third worldism, uh, will be fourth worldism, will be this other form of critique of state power altogether, coming from feminists, coming from indigenous groups, um, insurgents in Mexico and India who are challenging the third worldist regimes um, who are calling for state sovereignty uh, and a new international order and saying, well, we need a new domestic order here. Uh, we are not being represented. And this kind of fourth worldist imaginary picks up on some of the languages and the, you know, the assertions about freedom that were inscribed in the post-colonial uh, agenda and saying, uh, but it's not only incomplete, it's oppressive, right, for us too. Um, that story has 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 really yet to be told, but it is imminent. It's inscribed in the very imaginaries of who gets selected to show up at places like Bandung, right, and, and who is not. There is a story of repression as well in it, um, and and that we would have to pull that out as well. Yeah, I mean, there is a kind of a persistent tension between uh, certain kinds of movements from below and the kind of state capture of the the third world project. Uh, and this happens through various conferences and, you know, big events where state functionaries go and so on. But there is always, a, a you know, a persistent uh, desire from below of this alternative globalism, which is based on social justice and which is in some way non-territorial. And so, you know, by the time you get to uh, the tri-continental, um, there is an idea that there can be this kind of a global solidarity, which would be based uh, on some idea of justice against um, oppression against uh, capitalism and, and so on. So, which is not really territorial and state-based. Um, and, you know, that's very interesting work by Anne Mahler recently uh, on, it's called what, Tricontinental to Global South, where she argues uh, that you can see if you go back to Du Bois and Global Color Line, you can trace a kind of a connection all the way from there to the tricontinental and see a kind of a persistence um, about thinking of the world in these kind of non-territorial terms. It has kind of ebbs and flows, um, but uh, there, is a, there is a strain of thought. And so, I mean, I think there's a tension between that and state projects, uh, which comes to the fore in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and now, interestingly now, I mean, you find, for example, echoes of Black Lives Matter everywhere. Uh, I mean, I was in India where, you know, when this Modi government introduced this new anti-Muslim citizenship amendment act, um, there was really ground-level movement uh, led largely by Muslim women, which then adopted the slogan of Muslim Lives Matter. Uh, so obviously there is a sort of a, a connection being made, which harks back to some of the things that, you know, we talk about in the volume of these kind of a transnational, on-the-ground uh, globalism. 
I think this uh, the dystopian side of this that you're alluding to, Elisa, that, that Sam is picking up, is actually very well expressed in in Srirupa Roy's um, chapter in the book about India in the 1970s. That there is a, and that's that is the last empirical chapter where we begin to see the closure of all of this and the oppressive and the burden of this dreaming that turns to a large extent into a nightmare that's it and india is a place for which to think about these wider ways in which the utopian projects were were you know turning very dark um and and very dystopian well i was going to ask you what you think remains to be explored about this history but i think you've just given us um um lots of new avenues to consider particularly the the dystopian the struggles from below and the the undoing of the third world project. So I think we'll close um, by asking you each, if I ask you to conjure the third world, what is the first image or the first icon or, or the first uh, thing that comes to your mind that captures what you think one aspect of these multiple projects was about? Jeremy? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, one that often gets um and i hear this in my students uh one, one that often gets um downplayed and it's perhaps not as strong in the volume as we might have made it, and this is something that you know other historians can explore more is is the development question right um yeah you know, we're in a moment where people are trying to think about public goods about a model of of um uh you know sort of post-carbon intensive uh economic growth that's fair that's equitable and so on i i i think uh you know if there's something that needs to be you know that that could be even more again uh, churned up in in this moment is to re is is the development experience um and what that all meant and its own uh, trajectories uh development was very it was key at bandung was key in a lot of these conferences and socialism was a vision for uh, a development process that would industrialize in some way in an inclusive uh fashion um and so if 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 i would you know uh, spotlight one dimension of this history that needs that needs more airtime and 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 debate. It, it would be that one, I think, um, uh, for the present. In other words, that that this is on the minds of a lot of people now about how we reconstruct capitalism, uh, or if some might say even a post-capitalist order. Um, that that we could look back at these experiments uh, uh, for some guidance system. Yeah, I mean, just connected to what Jeremy said that particularly in relation to the environmental crisis, um, that one of the things that was brought out very clearly in the recent floods in Pakistan, where one third of Pakistan was, you know, underwater for months, um, one can't think of a crisis like that without seeing it within the kind of long history of colonialism. And how the imagination of another world um, is, you know, vital for thinking about our present, which, uh, you know, if we can recover from this kind of, a, you know, global uh, environmental crisis, which has this very differential effect on the third world. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that is very striking about as we think about, you know, the present world. And, you know, so it's in that way. And I mean, I, I just recently read um, an essay by Ashil Memembe, uh, who, you know, who also speaks about how he says, you know, the jurists, the political scientists, um, historians have robbed the third world of its imaginative leap and made it really into, oh, it was about geopolitics and so on. And so as you think about this kind of new world, I mean, I think one needs to recapture uh, 
how the third world was really uh, an attempt to aspire for a kind of really new world order, which would undo the kinds of things that have led to this present environmental crisis. So development, uh, environmentalism, and always coming back to these deeper connections of colonialism and, and global imperialism. Jan and Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this volume. And we look forward to its sequel, The Undoing of the Third World. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.